We need you to engage this YouTube channel. So like, comment, subscribe, or click on the notification bell and click on the links in the description to contribute. episode Amira by saying salamtik to Sarah Salamtik Sarah <laughs> Salamtik Sarah I don't know you but <laughs> get well soon yeah so the reason Amira is here is because Sarah fell sick and Amira stepped in and I'm really glad you did Amira joined the podcast like three weeks ago mm. maybe three episodes mm. earlier yes. you were the second guest yes. on Gen XC and I immediately drew a liking to you when I first met you years ago, but I could tell with the way you talk in front of a camera and microphone, you're a natural at this, and you showed up, you read the articles, you're ready, you've been bossing me around, telling me what I'm doing wrong, you've got paper and pen ready, you're showing me where the files are, so I'm just here to support Amira today. But we talked about doing this, I think, maybe two years ago, was the first time. Yes. If not, if not, maybe longer. But it's when you started writing regularly at Lorient today. That's true. And at Alias, I see you regularly. You join my live episodes quite a bit. I thought, yeah, it's time to celebrate some of your work. And we decided to focus in on a few uh, topics that you've been writing about recently. Before we get into that, before we jump into your written word, there's something I want to ask you. Why are you a journalist? If I've always had passion for politics. And it's not because I discuss, I chose to have passion for politics. It's because I come from a semi-political family, like you do. So both so my parents met because they were both members of the uh, Lebanese Communist Party. Oh, I, see. I didn't know that. Yes. And my uncles from my mother's family were very political. Some, some of them fought during... Uh, the Israeli occupation of Lebanon, they fought against Israel. Hmm. So I come from this background, and uh, my first awakening to Lebanese politics was during 2005, actually. Because, uh, like, like, a lot of things were happening at the time. The assassination of uh, Rafi al-Hariri, the political assassinations, there was a turning point back then. And uh, I wasn't in the 14th of March protest myself, but my parents were... Um, where I, they were against the Syrian occupation of Lebanon, and they were uh, supportive of the movement back then. Were they members then of the Communist Party? No, no. They were uh, old, like uh, in the mm. past. Yeah. Then, according to what they think, the uh, Syrian regime infiltrated. The party. I'm not advocating any of this. Infiltrated the party, so they felt uh, detached from the party uh, as it currently stands. So, um, so yes, during the 2005, they were supportive of the protests back then. So I started to be interested in politics. And, I, and it was, so for, for me, it was natural to keep following up on what's going on. The Sabah year, whatever happened, it, like, it was <coughs> interesting times. And it wasn't the case for uh, my three siblings. 
So I guess some people have tendencies, and mm-hmm. when they when they come from such background, um, it it resonates with them more. Uh, that being said, I what, why you mentioned Communist Party up front? Yes, but your writing, or at least the way you approach politics, seems more like your analysis, not the Communist Party's analysis. Is there a moment in you where you kind of took your own turn? Because you mentioned it early, there's almost a there's a political there's a political angle to your family's past, but I don't think of you as a communist member or a communist or leftist journalist. I think of you less than those terms. Yeah, I think, and partially my parents are to be given credit for this because mm. they did not force an ideology upon me. Mm. So they were members back then of mm. the Lebanese Communist Party. I don't know how much of the of it of typical communist members they're, they're not just members like communist uh, ideologically they mm. were not very much I would say mm. but they never forced an ideology which is a, a very uh, good thing uh, and I in my uh, approach to everything I try to detach from any upbringing I try to I mean we all have our biases and we, you can't uh, completely escape that but I try as much as I can to detach from all the societal upbringing, uh, whatever bias you can have uh, in my writing. So probably uh, that's why. Hmm. I, so I discovered socialism and all by myself. It wasn't through my parents. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So even communism to you comes from your that's true. writing and reading, not your yes. parents. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they would tell me stuff, and tell me what happened historically, yeah. World War II, Stalin, uh, Soviet Union. But like when I really learned about Marxism and socialism and communism, it was through my own reading, not through my uh, family. And sorry to steal the mic longer, but I wanted to ask you earlier, how old were you in 2005? Uh, I have to calculate. So 1993, 2005? You were 12. I was 12, yes. Amira, how old were you? Six years old. Six. Okay. Your parents, I'm going to guess the way you're describing them, supported that movement then. Sure. I was there. I was 24. Mm. Of course. 2000, yeah. Uh, so that actually, that's a nice way of looking back at a moment that maybe brings us together. But I know Can that... I have a question. Oh, sure. Uh, what did it feel like starting... What did it feel like starting your career in journalism with uprising about October 19? This is a very good question. And I, will I wrote that for her, by the way. No, you didn't. I don't know. That's true. But, uh, <laughs> but Rone, I think you were saying something about uh, that moment in particular. Mm. Then, then if, if I may, mm. then yeah, we can sure, go to, sure. uh, to that. Because uh, I feel that you had a... I wrote both questions. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely did color my... And back then, uh, you would you would have uh, pretty much the same opinions uh, as your uh, family like when you were twelve. Mm. So my parents were supportive of the movement, but at the same time they were also supportive of the resistance. So called resistance has back then. So it definitely did shape my politics. Like mm. I was, if not necessarily a fan, supportive of the resistance at the same time, supportive of the movement against the Syrian regime at the time. So yes, October 17th wasn't the moment where I had this political awakening. There are stages. So pro-Hezbollah, anti-Assad? In a way, 
Yes, it's a, uh, it, it is contradictory in a way. But, mm. uh, my parents, I guess, had their multi-personality disorder. No, no, it doesn't have to contradict, I'm just kidding. No, I think, I think it's, a, it's a segment of the population that wasn't I, maybe focusing on Hezbollah then. I mean, I, even you said that in Dajad uh, yeah. Ghusun podcast that back then Hezbollah was a different Hezbollah to yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. But it's nice to hear your, the way you talk about no, I'll say it differently. Listening to you as, as a friend, I always heard that in the background. Yes. Although you don't, you don't necessarily say it. Yeah, yeah. But I could feel like for you, October 17 is not defining you entirely. No, not, not really. I mean, not October 17, but uh, journalism, because I started my journalism career uh, one week before the October 17th revolution. Journalism changed my perspective a bit on the politics. Mm. Not a lot, not fundamentally, but it makes you aware of the complexities of Lebanese politics by detail instead of hearing about what the analysts are describing, like attending uh, parliament uh, sessions, attending mm. uh, cabinet sessions. You understand politics from the inside more, which is uh, a good thing, I guess. Mm. So let's lean on Amira's question, and maybe Amira, I'll let you guide this section your beginnings of journalism in October 17 and maybe the fast forwarding into what you're writing about now so I, I know I don't know enough I'll let maybe Amira you can your question was was great in itself actually the fact that قد ايه ديفرنت من الاشياء اللي نحن بنقراها بمعنى قد ايه في فيك نيوز؟ So this is a very good يعني question. لانه انت مثلا هلا عم بتقول عن الجلسه بمجلس النواب او وات ايفر، انت جوا نحن عم نسمع اخبار من برا وفي كثير اوقات ما بنعرف يعني بنقرا خبر اوكي ما بنعرف اذا صح او لا. بالنسبه لك هاو داز ات ورك وكيف نحن از اودينس Yeah, yeah, that's a very good question because this is something um, very important. Um, I also wrote that question. <laughs> um, in Lebanon, I don't want to <laughs> criticize my colleagues and uh, like other uh, news outlets. Mm. But in Lebanon, I feel, and I was more aware of this uh, when I became a journalist, I think we are a lot more than we should rumor-based uh, journalism for mm. a lot of uh, media outlets. Mm. Mm. Uh, instead of um, so what Lorient today is uh, and Lorient Lujur is aspiring to be right now is like uh, it's trying to be as fact checking as possible like differentiating what's mm. rumor and what's facts and what's analysis so getting into journalism made me more aware of that for mm. example I remember when the famous Tariq uh, Bitar cabinet session when they marginalized him I forgot what the decision was But the reports that were, the session was still uh, ongoing. The reports were, that were uh, being leaked about the cabinet session were very different than what uh, George Erdehe said uh, mm. after the session. Mm. And it happens oftentimes. Like the cabinet sessions, I said I attended them. You can't attend the session. Mm. So like you would get leaks before the session ends. And then it turns out, oftentimes, it turns out that these leaks were wrong. Mm. It's just assumptions. Or mm-hmm. whatever, however, these uh, journalists got the, the leaks from. So, sorry, your reporting comes from leaks, not from. No, being there. That 
No, I, I would be, so, this, yeah, this is very important for people to know. So journalists wouldn't be in the session, they would be at the mm -hmm. Sarai, mm -hmm. but not in the room with right. the session. Waiting right. outside. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, uh, when you see reports coming out of what is mm -hmm. happening during the session, if it's not uh, Mikata's office, uh, official account or something like this, it's basically leaks from, uh, from the inside, mm -hmm. uh, allegedly from direct sources, but uh, a lot of times it's not. And uh, oftentimes, uh, because usually the information minister uh, holds a press conference after, oftentimes he denies a lot of... Uh, the stuff that was being leaked. Uh, Parliament as well, some uh, sessions are uh, live, like you can see them on TV, but some of them are in uh, closed doors, only journalists can attend. So, and th this is where the fishy stuff happened actually, mm. during these, mm. uh, these sessions. Because yes, journalists are aware of it, but it's not broadcasted on mm. live TV. I don't know if I should say this, but like Parliament, the voting process, is kind of um, not very ideal. Like I've seen uh, voting, I, I've seen votes where the majority of MPs voted for something, and the Parliament Speaker would be like, "Oh, let's uh, get it back to the parliamentary committees," as if no voting happened. Mm -hmm. So basically, that's how much the Parliament Speaker has. How, how do you see that? Is it something you're you can you can't. Oh, because it's by uh, raising their hands. Right, right, yeah. yeah. So how how do you report on that, or do you report on that? Mm. <laughs> or do you get thrown out when you it's, report on no, that? No, no, you don't get thrown out. It's uh, basically like I've seen many people say that. Jordan Twain uh, once said that. Uh, uh, no, someone said that Jordan Twain, when he first entered politics, was surprised about how the voting process takes place. Like, like uh, they would be like, uh, okay, start voting and. The votes wouldn't be counted yet, and uh, the parliament speaker would be famously saying subject before he actually counts. Because mm -hmm. uh, what happens, like the theory is that he would have met with the heads of the political parties, and he knows how the vote would uh, mm. would turn out to be. Yeah. But uh, but I've seen votes where I counted the majority of, of uh, MPs voting for something, and uh, the parliament speaker would be like, oh no, let's get it back to the parliamentary committees. And and, and regarding the parliamentary committees, uh, also, as cabinet, we cannot attend these, uh, mm. these uh, sessions. So the parliamentary committees, like the finance and budget committee, like uh, justice and the administration, very important discussions mm, happen mm, there. Exactly. Like they're most important, more than the general assembly discussions. Journalists can't attend uh, these uh, sessions. And the uh, organizations like uh, the legal agenda refuse to attend uh, from the outside uh, these sessions because you can't attend. So you go to parliament actually and wait outside and you wait for leaks and you wait for MPs to go out. So legal agenda, for example, refuses to go to parliament during these sessions because they think it's uh, not right that the journalists can attend the sessions. But going back to what Amira asked about fake news, does Lorion today or Lorion Le Jour, do they have a mechanism in-house to monitor what they might spread, which is potentially misinformation? Is there this, a this is the aspiration. I'm not going to claim we're perfect at it and we're constantly improving. Mm. Um, especially when Lorient today got launched, um, I guess a lot of progress happened, and uh, Lorient Le Jour uh, also took a decision of like being that uh, voice. Like, well, what does Lorient Le Jour have to offer other than 
all great things that that Zen. All but what does it come down to? Do you just have to get uh, more than one source always for a particular report? Like for example, even if my competitors, other news outlets, are uh, reporting leaks, I would wait for the cabinet session to end mm. for me to report on something. I see. I will not report rumors, okay. for example. Right. So it's not about uh, catching the moment. Yeah, exactly. And this is, uh, yeah, uh, this is, I think, what L'Oreal L'Oreal today, or any news outlet, uh, the message of any news outlet should be, should be that. Because these uh, voices are not many in Lebanon. Like mm-hmm. the TVs have to be, understandably, maybe, mm-hmm. very fast into reporting the news. Mm-hmm. Um, but like even newspapers, they rely on how, how do newspapers function? Sometimes they are a tool to send a message to other politicians, no? instead of being the most credible uh, source of news out there. So you're not you're slower and you're reporting, mm. but then you're trying to get most of the, if not all the information vetted, which I think draws it back to what you got it. What why you're in this world to begin with? And I'm sorry if I keep stealing the mic. Whenever you want to talk, you just take over. Um, I'm guessing covering Nabih Birri's duplicity is not what took you to journalism. And I think October 17 and being stuck in Sarai have nothing to do with each other. So why are you a journalist? You mentioned your parents are ex-communist members. Yes. But I still don't know why you are writing for a living. I didn't get to what, what is it about journalism? Because I, you're a news reporter. Yes. And you're becoming a features writer. I think you are kind of both now. But I still don't know what drew you into this profession. Are you, are you trying to achieve a goal? Is there something political happening? Because you could be, you could be in, in any other profession that revolves around politics. Yes. You could be in a political party. Yeah. You could be an activist that's... In humanitarian, a, for Humanitarian or anything. But you chose the written word. Yes. And not a very uh, influencer-friendly version of journalism. You're a mm. real journalist. You write patiently, and I read your articles patiently, and you're young. So I'm, I'm, what is the draw to this profession? I mean, the interest and in, uh, what's going on, as I uh, explained, is, it comes naturally. So I don't have to... like. Uh, make a lot of effort to be interested in my job when I'm in journalism. Uh, so it's not uh, a job that I have to uh, squeeze some skills out of me. Following news is very natural to me. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, um, if I, because you can't follow 24-7 what's going on. Sometimes I would come uh, uh, home and like my mother would have uh, Al-Arabiya or Al-Azidde on and I would listen to the news while she's listening to the news. That kind of comes natural. So why uh, did I choose this profession? I guess like everyone, they want to have their own take on uh, what's going on. I wanted to have my own take uh, on politics and Lebanon. But when I uh, went deeply into journalism, you uh, change uh, the perspective of what you can add to journalism changes instead of uh, me... uh, giving my opinions about every issue, it becomes more of, oh, I want journalism in Lebanon to be more fact-based than, uh, more than uh, rumor-based. And mm-hmm. that's a very important thing, in, uh, in my opinion, at least. Mm-hmm. So yes, my takes on stuff, I don't tweet as much uh, now, 
this for now. Maybe I'll tweet more my take on what's going on uh, more in the future. But my main uh, focus is uh, distinguishing uh, facts from rumors. And uh, I think this is what is needed the most. I'll ask one more question, then I'll let Amira speak. Are you trying to fix something that you saw broken? Because I still don't have an answer. <laughs> what you're telling me is, is something that's, I think, 50% of the story. The other 50% I'm trying to understand. Yes. Uh, I don't hear anything about writing when you're a kid. I yes. haven't heard anything about storytelling yes. as a profession. Yes, yes. I haven't heard any other journalist name that inspired you. All I see in front of me is somebody who's young and passionate about a profession Yes. But watching a lot of beer with your mom is not enough to do that. I'm trying to understand why you're in Lorient today. And the add to that, you're pushing yourself to write comfortably in English. Yes. You're working in an I mean it's a respectable outlet. So you've already pushed yourself. Yes. At the start, you didn't just sort of uh you're not blogging or you're not uh sharing posts for the sake of it. You're in a news agency. Yes, yes, yes. I, I don't know why. I, I don't know what took you to this world yet. I mean, my major is English linguistics. Okay. It's not journalism. Okay. Yeah, I searched that. So. <laughs> I said, I didn't know. Okay, so you studied you English. I, I didn't check his LinkedIn, no. <laughs> so I should have done that. So I'm not going to claim I'm the best uh, writer out there, but when I wrote something, if someone sees it, they would uh, think it's remarkable. So, mix. Um, that's, not a, that's a quote I'm going to steal. <laughs> I'm going to take that from the podcast and throw that on you. No, <laughs> Talk no, about I'm, like that's, that's humble, big, you know? No, no, very no, humble. No, 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 I'm not. I'm not. This is not my uh, no, I, I best, best yeah. skill, but like for the average person, I suppose, writing, when I wrote something in a second language, a foreign language, uh, it was always impressive for some people, at least, not everyone. So, mix uh, the passion for uh, English language, for writing, and interest in politics and you get uh, yeah yeah you get you get an interest in journalism but then you could just be an author you could write short stories about everything you're choosing journalism that's I but there's no politics in in short stories okay so the politics politics and uh, and English and uh, and writing right okay mix both of them with all the background yeah 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 exactly with the background I think of you sort of as an activist, but a quiet one. Okay. And that's kind of the way I see your role in journalism. Because over time, I've seen your writing shift into one of narrative. And you sent us three articles. We can get into more if necessary. But three articles that are talking about, in a way, the breakdown of society. Sure. And one that, in a way, reminds me of the early 90s more than anything is an article you wrote about license plates or lack thereof mm. all over the country mm. and you chose certain characters mostly near Badbuk talking about yeah this is how it's done and I like that you even bring them to life a bit yeah you actually it's almost like they're um, there's a sense of humor sometimes sure. in them it's like well, why would I do it sure, sure. Aslan where am I going to go to do it yeah, yeah, yeah and there's one one individual who has certain plates for certain destinations mm-hmm. So first, I'd like to ask you, why did you write this story and whether or not this symbolizes to you a larger breakdown that's happening 
not necessarily violence, more like this is the ungovernable country we live in. It's a symptom of the economic crisis, for sure. I mean, I st- going back to when I started, I started one week before the October 17th revolution, and then everything else started uh, happening, mm-hmm. you know, the economic crisis, COVID, the Beirut explosion. But yeah, we've been writing about more or less the symptoms of the economic crisis since uh, four years now. So yeah, this is one of the symptoms of the economic crisis in the sense that Best of the economic crisis? Oh, definitely. I think the economic crisis is Definitely the state was not perfect even before the economic crisis, but I think it exacerbated. Uh, it exacerbated because economic crisis or because state to hold people accountable for what they're doing. But who, before 2019, there was no proper state, right? But can functioning actor. Okay, so I what think. what happened? What's the uh, what happened from the, since two thousand nineteen until now? Mm. Why did the state get worse in your opinion? Mm. Hey, from the uh, more economic or less, crisis, right? Uh, yeah, and then everything, uh, every result that happened after is the symptom of that. Mm. Be it uh, the bank heist that we we've seen happening. Be it the increase of crime, be it the phenomenon of the rising and the, the rise and the non-existence of the license plates, and it's um it's on both uh, elements. Like it's because of the security situation. Like um I don't think they would deny it, but I don't think the ISF have uh, as much resources as uh, before. Mm. Like, uh, mm. We okay. see it if you go mm. and uh, file a complaint, uh, they would be like they would be very. Uh, slow and they would be like oh we can't do it sometimes i'm curious why you chose this geography in particular is this something that you wanted to address in particular or from your coverage is this where it's happening the most can i be honest yeah i'm gonna be raw uh it's you search for people who are willing to speak to you and you don't even if a car has more uh, people uh, without license plates you can only report on one when people choose to talk to you. Oh, Akkar mm. is where it's most... Is no, 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 I'm, I'm, hypothetically. Oh, ah, okay, okay, yeah. yeah. Even if Dahi, whatever. Mm. Um, what? So Baalbaq is the area where people were uh, least scared to talk to me. Why do you think that is? Why are they the least scared with Baalbaq? They've all taken your counseling <laughs> services and they're willing yeah, to talk. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> they, express, they express themselves better now. Maybe, yeah, yeah. This is a psychological phenomenon, I guess, that mm. needs uh, to be explained. Maybe they are the least that are uh, scared to play, that are open about breaking the law mm. for some reason. Mm. Maybe mm. it's because of this. And they have a sense of humor, as, uh, mm. as yeah. yeah. Like, uh, what am I supposed to do? Like, the Nef asked, am I supposed mm. not, to, uh, not to drive my cars? Uh, One of the people told me in the article, am I supposed to keep my cars parked? So, but they're comfortable telling you that they're breaking the law. Yes. More than other people would be in but other regions. Even, even anonymously. Like, I did not mm. mention it. But even mm. anonymously, people would be... Um, I tried to uh, call a couple, uh, a number of bolt drivers, and they were scared. To, uh, like, that's uh, one of the ways to like, get to people without license plates. But let's push on what Amira asked. Why do you think Baalbek is more confident in talking about crime? This is a hard question. Is it because the clan culture mm. is by definition an anti-state mm. culture? Mm. And like breaking the law is something to brag about. 
I mean, if you think of clans as a concept, it started because states used to suppress uh, a portion of people and clans existed to defend these uh, people from the oppression of the state. Mm. Mm. So that's the best explanation I can find. So I don't know how to decide. Which is something I suppose in the culture it's mm. something uh, rather than uh, shameful, it's something uh, mm. rebellious. Mm. But then why would they talk to you? You're some guy from Leilake Oh, they did not know my background. Oh, oh I see. Okay. Yeah. yeah. They so, had no idea what my background was. So, with your permission, how do you get these contacts? Do you drive around without a license plate? <laughs> Until someone <laughs> says it. Often, often fine. That's often my car. That's, that's the problem. That's the problem with the newspapers around the world, not just uh, like the New York Times, uh, they are city based rather than like understanding uh, they are based in New York so if they they are uh, less likely to understand other states than New York because they are based there uh, that's my uh, opinion so also like if it's in Baalbek we have correspondence uh, in the north and in Baalbek and in a lot of areas so it, uh, it would be through a mm-hmm. correspondent they would introduce me to someone or like a friend of mine I would ask them about the area and about people who are willing to speak um so, the, yeah, this mission in particular, finding people who are willing to speak without license plates, you wouldn't go field reporting. You wouldn't go there mm. and, like, <laughs> see a person without a license plate, stop them. That would be maybe reckless. Mm. Like, hey, stop. Can you please talk to me? Um, instead, you ask people. It's through people. Mm. And is just to know the process, is this something over WhatsApp? I mean, are you just chatting with them over the phone? A call, uh, sometimes, uh, yeah, sometimes you text, like sometimes. Okay, so you're not actually going to the car itself. It depends, it depends on the story. Are any of these individuals people that you met in person? Uh, from this article, no. No. And okay. other articles, definitely. But no, because I was curious about the risk you're willing to do to touch mm-hmm. on something I think that is risky. I mean, if, if I think. Not, not much, I would say. No? No. I like also oh, that that shows you once somebody knows the area better than yeah. <laughs> why not? You think if, you're protected if, by them? If you go to Baalbek, you're a journalist. You're not messing with any political party. You're not trying to show that they are drug dealers. Like it's not. Mm. It's just people without license plates. With which is yeah. the uh, which many people don't have license plates. And the Nefas clause. It's justified. I don't think there's there's much risk into investigating that. Like it's not. The, Interesting. I yeah. I mean, you're the only person I know that's written about this. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Even though it's something I see. Not mm. forget bad, but I see it. Everywhere. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. On my uh, here when I'm driving everywhere, you see yeah. it everywhere, right? And I get a it bad feeling. A lot. Y- yes, mm. exactly. Increased remarkably. Mm. But sure. I want to. Maybe I can ask both of you. Do you feel that very deep uneasiness when you see it? Before we answer this question, sorry, I will let you answer this. But because we said that. It's partially because of the security situation, but they, like it's mostly because of the NEFA. Because the vehicle registration center has been, uh, because of a mass arrest, because of a mm. big scandal, it, it closed for uh, long months, and now it reopened and still experiencing a lot of traffic, so it's not fully functional anymore. Uh, so it's mostly because of this. 
It's not just because of the security and mm. lack of resources for the ISF. That's why the numbers went up. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. But but do you guys get that when you're driving? Or maybe, I don't know, do you both drive? Mm. I do. You, you drive. Amira, do you, mm. yeah. do you get that uneasiness when you see a car in front of you with no license plate? Does it, does it, does it have any uh, discomfort when you're driving? No, I keep an eye. Y- yeah, right. You keep an eye. I, I get, I get, a, I get nervous. I don't. I'm cautious. I'll tell you why, though, because I, I know the nerve situation, and I know, uh, like for example, a lot of people are without a, a license, a driving license, mm. and the interior minister himself said we will not. Uh, punish people for not having driving licenses from now until a year he extended the mm, period yeah. because he knows that the situation is tricky mm. so yes uh, but it's different when a car has no registration mm. you can that car can hit you sure mm. sure sure and and uh, he mentioned this in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly this yeah, is yeah. one of the risks if anything right. happens and you know by law a lawyer uh, lawyer Ayman mm. told mm. me uh, that uh, the punishment of uh, a car with no license plates is higher than uh, normal theft. Like if you uh, sorry, if you steal a car, mm. the punishment for it is higher than uh, any other theft because the law kind of interprets that there's a big uh, uh, percentage that you are stealing this car to commit another crime. Mm. Right. Yeah. That blow. And we've yeah. read a lot of news like this, by yeah. the way. Yes. So. Uh, mm. I'll actually I'll, I'll I'll embed it in the episode, but it's called "Cars with No License Plates: mm. A Rising and Dangerous Phenomenon." Um, if anything, that's I think of the articles you sh- you sent earlier. That's the friendliest article. <laughs> yeah. And that's a crime in itself. Uh, I want to get into a subject I think the three of us can talk about, which is something that's not easy to write about mm. in any publication because emotions rise. Uh, sectarianism is discussed fairly or unfairly. Demographics get in the way. Sure. The right to nationality, whether it's fair or not, fathers versus mothers, everything comes out of one story. A proposed law could restrict stateless people's access to Lebanese citizenship. What's at stake? Now, this is not an article particularly addressing Syrian refugees. It's addressing stateless people, yeah. which I think in itself has that loophole, which means you could get citizenship with that stateless uh, uh, label. And you write about the article that the loophole is being closed or potentially being closed yes. by an FPM uh, MP. Uh, his name escapes me now. Hassanatallah. Thank you. The first question is the kind of narrative you're offering, which is, I think I got from the article, whether this is right or not, I don't know, is that doing this will only harm more people rather than help anyone. I think that's the bigger message in the article. You may not have wanted that to come out that way, but that's how I read it. You cite primarily NGO figures and people we know as pointing this and saying this will only exacerbate. Uh, the statelessness of these stateless people and will not guarantee Lebanese the right to apply later. So maybe we can get into why you wrote this article and whether or not you have, not an agenda here, but more like, is that something that you believe in too and that's why this article was written? I definitely believe that the way to solve this issue is not through a law like this. 
mean, the mud is very, very complex, not just to stateless people. You have, you have to also deal with the right of citizenship to like women giving the, the citizenship to their children or Palestinians, or uh, we should discuss uh, Syrian refugees as well. So yes, I uh, wrote this article after the law was uh, proposed and was discussed in the parliamentary committees that would ban uh, anyone who was born uh, in 2011 and uh, became stateless. Uh, from obtaining the Lebanese citizenship. So basically, according to UN conventions, stateless people have the right for uh, for citizenship in uh, Lebanon. Uh, so if they uh, file an appeal to the courts here, they potentially can obtain it. Mm. However, the process is a very complicated one. Like not every stateless people, I mean the far majority, have not obtained this uh, citizenship. Uh, but it also um, could potentially ban Lebanese people, like people of Lebanese mm. fathers, mm. from uh, getting the Lebanese citizenship. So that's why um, organizations have uh, criticized this proposal. They framed it as the homof- uh, not homophobia, the racism uh, around this issue could potentially ban Lebanese people from Lebanese fathers of uh, obtaining yeah. citizenship. So. Uh, how does a person become stateless? For many reasons, but the main reason is uh, if their parents did not register them within a year of uh, mm. of them being born. And the MP Hassan Atallah claimed that in a lot of cases, uh, Syrian uh, fathers or parents would like bribe Mukhtars to not register... Uh, as Syrian mm. refugees. Yeah, mm. them as Syrian refugees, uh, their children but as a stateless, so that they have to the right to apply for the citizenship later. That's his claim. I don't know if it's true or not. Uh, but when I asked him about uh, Lebanese people being uh, banned from uh, getting that citizenship, he said that the law is still in its primitive form, and we are yet to find a solution yes. for this uh, mm-hmm. loop. Yes. Okay, but let's go into your own personal objective here. Is it? Do you think of media's role as trying to prevent a law like that? from being implemented? It's more of, uh, it should be more, in my opinion, informative. So like explaining to the readers hmm. what, what the subject is, like uh, the stateless issue, why do we have stateless people in Lebanon? We have 27,000 stateless people. What is the history behind it? Uh, does it, uh, do stateless people have uh, the What same is the number? 27,000. So we actually know the official number. No, I don't. Sorry. Oh, sorry. But we know that it's roughly twenty-seven thousand. Yes. That's the legally approved it's, stateless. It's people who have done research on uh, on this subject, like Siren. Oh, okay. They yeah. estimated to be around twenty-seven thousand people. Oh wow! So it's a very small number, given the number of refugees in the country. Sure, but that but, but that's yeah, that's the issue. Like. Uh, I guess you can make the case uh, better for stateless people than refugees because uh, a lot of them have been living in the country since Lebanon's uh, creation, maybe. Mm. And the 1994 or 1993 normalization gave uh, 200,000 people citizenship. Mm. A third of them, I think, uh, were stateless, even though the normalization was uh, aimed at giving these stateless people that citizenship. Because I guess there was uh, so much pressure from the uh, international community. Could we get into a back and forth here? Maybe I can have you guys talk about this. The reasons why this is such a nervous train wreck to talk about. 
Because it's a, it's okay. Let, let's let me say from my side first. Yes. It's a very new, it's a very nuanced article. But I do know in that article, yes. and I think it's safe to say, you're pointing the direction that this law would be bad if implemented. Because this is not the way to deal with the issue. Right, it's, and you should deal with it in a general. Uh, right, aspect. and this is where it gets to me more interesting because, and I'll say this again and again and again, you're not a journalist. You're there is an activist within you. I feel it, and I know it. It comes out. It comes out in a very carefully measured way because you're not just a neutral reporter there is an opinion that expresses itself and it matches a lot of the opinions shared among civil society I think it happens to coincide with it in other words you're not just writing a balanced give and take article it's not like oh this is the FPN's position that's another oh I think I am I think I am but I think every person has that own opinions that they refrain from saying sometimes because they want a nuanced article. I mean, it, to you, it, it was like the message is clear uh, on this one. But Maybe uh, I misread it. Maybe. No, no, it's, it's not the misreading. Yeah. And, and, I, and I'm not criticizing other journalists, but when I talk to a source or an activist uh, about their opinions, when I ask them, I don't choose the activist that would reflect that mm. I would know what they're going to say. Mm. That would reflect my opinion. I mm. try to be as honest as possible on this. And oftentimes, oftentimes I would have an opinion about something mm. and the activist or the expert or whatever would surprise me with their opinion and my opinion would change along the line. Mm. That's so it's very open. I, I yeah, think this is the word. Yeah. Yes, open, but I mean, okay. But I think, Tony, I think deep down, everyone has their own uh, okay. uh, take on stuff. I, if I could say it better, uh, there's an opinion within the articles that is growing and showing itself more over time. The, the characters you talk about in the license plate uh, article, you're bringing them to life in a, in a colorful way, not in a prejudiced way. So you're not talking about them as if these people should go to jail tomorrow. You're actually, in a way, humoring them and and showing that the state is more to blame than them. Sure. Yeah, so there's that and, angle. Indirectly. Right. Indirectly, which means there's a humanitarian streak within you, I think, that grows over time. I don't think this has to do with parents or grandparents belonging to a a, uh, a party like the Communist Party. I think this is you. Definitely not the grandparents. Yeah, is, yeah well, that's, yeah, it's, it's you. I think it's you. And then in this article, you're talking about the real threat this poses to Lebanese without registering now, or potentially hurts other people later, but there's no condemnation whatsoever about the Syrian refugee disaster. Sure. So I think you are shaping a narrative. Maybe, maybe. But I want to ask you both this question, uh, with permission. Why do you think this art, this type of discussion brings out the worst instincts in Lebanese? Mm. Mm. You're a psychologist, you're a journalist, and you're touching you know on this subject... Opinion. Well, I, I, maybe I, we could do it back and forth. I, talk, I talked about it when we did the episode. So, I, for example, we we talk about national identity and the idea that we can get rid of these people. What do It's a threat, a symbolic threat to a lot of people. And then we talk about demographics and the numbers. And we talk in our daily life. We don't care, but we don't care about it. Sure. They eat This is demographics. We don't care about it, but we don't care about it. 
symbolic it's not a real it's, it's a symbolic thread or oh, I think it all comes from from there from fear of that demography change even when you bring up the subject of abolishing the sectarian system this mm. comes up no yeah اقل example قد ايه قلنا مش عاملين احصاءات بلبنان لانه whenever بنفكر بصير لا ما المسيحيه صاروا كثير قليل الاسلام صاروا اكثر اكلونا لا بليها لانه اذا رجعنا حطينا the real numbers لح they will feel threatened all over again اللي هو شعور التهديد مثل كانه كل حدا عم بيهدد الثاني but in your experiences together is it purely numbers that's the real problem here no but in the numbers and the symptoms from of the fear في خوف من الاخر قد ما نحكي تعايش وبنطلع على الباترون وبننزل على جنوب في خوف من الاخر it's not only sectarian it is you mean numbers as in representation and politics? So I'll tell you my psychological way of reading this article. Uh, knowing that the number is fairly small, it doesn't seem to me to ruffle enough feathers when it every other feather is ruffled when you talk about Syrian refugees. Oh, I see, I see. You mean when it comes to stateless people? In yeah, yeah sta- uh, the, so this emphasis on stateless people yes. and trying to close, close the loophole yes, on yes. that, yeah, I guess to me it's, it seems like it's definitely it's a populist stance. It's it's definitely I mean it's definitely a populist because the number is not very big. Right. Uh, yeah, it's, but it's, when, it's but not always about the number. It's the idea. So can we talk about that a bit? Yes, I feel the idea. 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 So في فكرة إنه أصلاً نحنا بكتير أوقات من ما منقول النظام السوري منقول السورية which is not true that's true في نظام سوري وفي الأشخاص اللي ما عن الجنسية السورية so في كمان إنه ما دلن عنا خمستاعش نرجع سنبولك ترى دلن عنا خمستاعشر سنة بدون يحدو الجنسية كمان إنه في ال trauma background اللي بعده Okay, so that, that goes into... This is from a psychology, and yeah. but, but regarding stateless people, I don't know if it has that kind of... No. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean uh, kind of. I mean, FPM is... Uh, and it's not I mean, just... It's, it's not just FPM. Like, uh, yeah. Other parties would have taken the same stance. Right. And if they were to approve it, uh, to approve the law, it's not just an FPM who, is, uh, mm. who are approving it. So mm. at FPM, all other parties, one of their uh, not role, uh, what's the word for it? One of their slogans is like uh, not uh, mm. normalizing uh, Syrians and Lebanon. Right. Yeah. 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 The presence of Syrians and Lebanon mm. and not keeping them there and working on their repatriation. Mm. So this is one of their ways to prevent this from happening. Which, which is what their voters are going to like. And it's not just FBM, just so, to clarify this. Okay, so let's then take that, and that's why this article, maybe the stateless issue, maybe that kind of bill passes, perhaps. And it doesn't have the outcry that you would imagine because those numbers are fairly small. And let's imagine now for a moment, you have an opinion on the Syrian refugee population's predicament. Yes. And you have the way to explain our fears mm. 
justified or not mm. over the Syrian regime mm. and associating them with the Syrian regime. Mm. How are you guys able to get to these conclusions when the overwhelming majority of people, I think over time, have shown themselves to be discriminatory, prejudiced, want the Syrians to leave, sure. are eager, and perhaps even to the point that they blame European powers, and this is an odd explanation, for keeping them in Lebanon. Mm. That narrative has taken shape now. Mm. It's almost like we're the ones who want them out and Europeans want them to stay here. Mm. Sure. That kind of, it sounds like sloppy conspiratorial stuff, but that narrative has taken hold. Sure. So how did you guys come to conclusions that are minoritarian but maybe more noble? Uh, looking at the world, I think refugees get, uh, it's a very common thing to blame refugees for the country's own problems. So if you follow any foreign uh, country's policy, uh, this would be an easy thing to figure out uh, early on. I like, of course, being friends with a lot of uh, refugees. Um, it makes it more helpful to humanize them instead of you can't blame your friends uh, mm -hmm. because they find jobs and work for the <laughs> economic crisis or the political situation, hardships that your own country is facing. I guess that's, uh, this is the case uh, for me. So you have friends that are... Syrians? I have Syrians. Yeah, uh, but in journalism itself or just... In no, no, in life. Yeah, and so that has better shaped your perspective. Sure, but it's not only that. It's... Uh, yeah. Because it's a common thing that politicians use. Mm. Basile, for example, imitates a lot of uh, right-wing politicians, not, not just with this issue, but uh, like if you compare Trump and Basile, you would find a lot of commonalities, including this issue. I think it's important to take a step back, to zoom out, to reassess, or uh, not to act on our uh, impulsive... Uh, First impulses. Uh, on our frustration mm. so to take a step back to reflect on things uh, personally this is what I do plus you know, Anna, I have like, the curiosity I know I'm interested in social psychology to understand society so I try to understand what's underlying whatever it is, مش بس بهيدا الموضوع. I think it's important that you mentioned our relatives and family. Yeah. At some point, I think we are responsible to unlearn what we learned. So نحنا برك في كتير عالم عيلة عندها هيدا السردية تبع إنه برك أكلونا برك إنه شو عم يعملوا هون و. أخذوا لنا الشغل بعد كم بعده عم يحكي أخذوا لنا الأشغال فكمان هون it's important إنه يكون في distance عن هالحديث اللي دايما عم يرجع. So let's say what we're saying is actually the right approach. I'm not saying that what we're thinking is wrong. Sure. I'm pretty convinced that way of thinking is a healthier, far more noble approach to the suffering of refugees. Sure. Okay, so we can put that now on the side. Do you think we are in any way being ideological at a time where most Lebanese are looking at that as problematic? I and I, can I, I mean, we're, we're assuming 
that most Lebanese are eager to do the right thing too. And I don't know if we're maybe uh, better appreciating real anxiety. And that could be going in a direction that's very destructive. So I'll, I'll, I'll give an example. The way we're talking about it, it's, it's academic and it's objective and it's nuanced and that. And then uh, you hear the worst, uh, the worst remarks coming from villagers in the mountains that are eager to partition the country and get out. Sure. And they have no curiosity in the suffering of anyone. They want to see their Lebanon survive. Sure. Is there anything media is doing wrong and maybe not approaching that other side of the argument with a little more attention? Because I think all the articles I've, I read, and maybe I'm also in a certain echo chamber, subscribe to what you're saying and what you're saying, Amira. But then you have most Lebanese not, not thinking this way. You're making a good point. Like mm. It's always, you have to be completely, if you're um, thinking about the refugee issue, if you're thinking about what negative consequences it could have on the economy, it's immediately framed as a racist. Yeah. Mm. So it's either or, uh, it's either if you think this way, you're a racist, and mm-hmm. if you don't, you're unpatriotic. Mm. Yeah. So you can't be... No middle ground. Yeah, exactly. Right, uh, yeah. And, and you're right. Uh, newspapers should consider that other... So how would that, how could that be done by the side that's trying to do the right thing? I don't expect uh, NBN, and OTV, or maybe even certain personalities on LBC and MTV. Yes. I don't expect them to stand tall. Yes. But how would those that are standing tall in their profession, how would they approach this subject? I think they can explain best how the economic crisis is not the fault. Like, uh, mm. in spite of the fact that Syrian refugees could have negative consequences on the infrastructure or the economy, they can make it clear that the economic crisis is not the result of refugees being in Lebanon, for example, yeah. in a scientific way. Yeah. Do you find yourself wanting to do that? Of course. Okay. Yeah. I think that, that seems to be the more... Reasonable. Or the more attractive approach to try not to throw away the other side completely. It's the most unique, and I think few people do it. Yeah. I know Jad Ghusn sometimes like, uh, mentions it uh, this way, or mm-hmm. Ramaz Al-Adi on Al-Jadid. Yeah, right. But few people do that. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you talk science and people take it personal, you don't stop talking science. Also, also, uh, sorry, you were going to say is, something. Is that, uh, can I I'm, I'm presenting scientific facts. See, I don't know if this in, is... Yeah. In a way of finding middle ground. Right. My wife. I know if you... I want to find a formula where you can talk about Christian anxiety and Syrian refugees with the same emotion. Yes. And I don't think there's a formula yet that's been put together. What you just asked, exactly. It's because I think the other side, mm. that's if, if there's two sides here, I don't know if that's even right. other side is on its own journey. And we're not there for it. I don't get what you mean. Okay. Um, don't you think it's a national issue? Don't you think it's a it's a national issue? I uh polarization hmm. opinions I agree with Wael in terms of 
your heart is in the right place. But I don't know if their heart, meaning remote, xenophobic, demographically insecure villagers, or whoever, Tasliq, Patroon, some parts of Ashrafi too, I don't know if their heart is in the wrong place. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We're yeah. talking about our relatives, of course. Yes, exactly. Nice yeah. people who think this way. Yeah. They can be manipulated into thinking this way, definitely. Yeah. And I, and I think other than uh, making it scientific that the economic crisis is not the result of Syrian refugees, let's remember uh, who allowed more than a million refugees to come uh, to Lebanon without any plan whatsoever. It's the Lebanese state. So if anyone was to blame on why we have so many refugees in the country, it's not the refugees who are fleeing these countries to escape uh, yeah. uh, wars and uh, uh, anything. It's, uh, it's the Lebanese state. Well, that should be blamed and the, the, that the people should be angry at. Well, yeah. This state didn't regulate uh, ما عملوا تنظيم مضبوط للمخيمات للاجئين ما عملوا اي اجراء يعني كان عم بفوت لاجئين وما كان عم بيكون في تنظيم وخلص صارت اوت اوف كنترول وقت كان there was a debate between 14th and 8th of March about the Syrian refugees 8th of March wanted to place them in camps and this is according to the former interior minister the interior minister at the time Marwan Sadbal Um, 14th of March, uh, because they were uh, against the Syrian regime, they could empathize with uh, the refugees more. And they were yeah. like, oh, these are our relatives. We have to uh, treat them with dignity. So because of this debate between the two political factions, they couldn't make any decisions, which is unfortunate because they, they should have. I mean, like 18 or, uh, sorry, 14 or 18. No, Yeah. No, I just I always think about this that there there's a narrative that took hold in the country that most of us don't really look at with with fairness. We look at it as I mean I mean you are trying to look at that too. I'm trying fairness. and I find very few friends on the way. Yes. And But I, that's true, yeah. It's yeah. always either or, no? Either. Exactly. Yeah. And I think the tendency is to go further left on the issue. And that way seem like it's delivering the right message. Sure. But whereas most of the country is not there. Sure. And that, I think, it, if it's explained the right way, the way you're describing, that's the best way possible. Mm. And I like your emphasis on uh, you, don't, you don't shy away from science when people are ignoring it. But can you really talk to uh, a devout religious believer about the merits of atheism. It doesn't really sit well with them either. So I, there has to be a way to communicate hey, this exactly. narrative. Communication is Communication, key, yeah. Uh, no. Plus, you're, I think we, you have to simplify things. Mm-hmm. Kind of, you, get, you have to... I'm talking about... judgment. Yeah. When you want to open a discussion, judgment. If you judgment, conversation. In your profession, have you ever faced that issue where you're approaching something with judgment and you catch yourself? Anna, I was approaching something with judgment. Yeah. As a clinical psychologist, I doubt it, right? <laughs> I'm trained to do that. Yeah. And that's why I think a lot of people uh, hey, can feel comfortable talking to me. They, I know, I'm, I'm very neutral, I'm very objective. 
So I'm glad you said that. You approach your career, your profession without judgment. Definitely. Do you think enough journalists are approaching this issue without judgment? No. Okay, that's maybe the best way I'm trying to explain this issue. Okay. It took me time to get there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, but there's a judgment that's maybe not entirely fair. Sure. Mm. I mean, most journalists would be on the side that would blame uh, refugees, but these journalists who uh, sympathize with Syrian refugees, yeah, they don't approach this issue with no uh, judgment. You're right. Yeah. Thank you for letting me batter that issue down. Because the first time I actually talk about it and uh, like trying to understand why the Christians want divorce. <laughs> and we're not necessarily, we don't resonate with them. I'm increasingly convinced that that is a narrative that has taken on, it's, it's a, it has legs now, it's walking. Yeah, maybe. And I, it's the kind of people we should be able to still communicate with. Sure. And it's like, no, that's, that's, your, that's your issue, you play with it as much as you want, we want out. My Lebanon, your Lebanon. More like your refugee issue, not ours. Mm. Yeah, that to me doesn't seem right. seems like there's something lost because I don't think anyone wants refugees for the sake of it. Mm. There's are suffering people living here. But I don't think any Lebanese are like, the more refugees, the better. Mm. That's not true. Mm-mm. They seem to think that, though. True. Mm-mm. So they're missing something and we're not saying it the right way. That's too. true, yeah. Yeah, there's something there. And I think, if anything, it lives in what you just said. No judgment to a mentally, to a, an unhealthy person. You don't judge them prior to talking to them. This is an unhealthy conflict, but we're applying a lot of judgment. For mm. sure. Oh, this is what take fuels the, the, yeah. the threat. Yalla. Yes, exactly. Or the media enjoys it, yani. Yeah. Yalla. There's no fire extinguisher where it should be. It's almost <laughs> like you're putting <laughs> out the... <laughs> hey, fire, fire extinguisher on a... On a... Hey, yeah, yeah. No, no, we have some fire extinguisher, but no. it's not going to the fire. It's going to, like, the water. Sure. It's like, no, no, man, that's where the fire is. Okay, I will... Ask one more thing, and then Amira, you have as much say whatever you'd like. I want to get into the most sensitive subject you wrote about. It's kind of related to this one, right? uh, yeah. Because we're uh, we're talking about change and how change happens. How yeah. you how you can convince someone of something. It doesn't happen by framing them as being racist mm. or homophobic mm. or whatever. Mm. Now let's. I'm going to title it. Three Lebanese intellectuals tell us what they think of the recent. Quran burning incident in Sweden by Wael Talib. What a great, what a great career. You know, like, <laughs> I don't know if you want your name right there. But yeah, uh, first, why are you covering a story about a Swedish religious text burning? I mean, I didn't know what you were trying to, th- there's a motive here that I didn't understand. Yes. This is a remote issue happening in Sweden. This is a recent piece that came out just a few days ago. So why are you talking about Islam, holy text, sure. and how Lebanese think about it in and, Sweden? And is it Islamophobia, do you think? The act itself? Yeah. I, I mean, why I wrote about it is because I knew this, uh, I mean, not I knew, everyone knows, because this discussion will happen everywhere, whether this act is within the frame of uh, freedom of expression or not. Even in Lebanon, this will be discussed. I was wondering what people in Lebanon think, and I think in general, now with the 
with political correctness with the so-called mm. walk. I think in Lebanon, I will say something that might seem insane, but I think in a way we have, we can express our opinions without feeling judgment more than a lot of countries in the West. Mm. We wouldn't be uh, cancelled or something just because we are discussing these issues. Um, so in a way we have the capacity to do that here mm. more than a lot of countries mm. that advocate for freedom of expression but nowadays are struggling to... So what you're saying is we're so damn politically incorrect we have... We can talk about everything. The upside of the that ups, is yeah. that you can yeah. test ideas and yeah. brainstorm. Yeah. <laughs> so you have the capacity for so that. So you've taken on the mantle of going <laughs> in every direction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And... Uh, and uh, could, could you could you color uh, just briefly color the piece for us just the the ter- the general story of what happened because I I know the snippets I know the headlines but what exactly did this Iraqi Swedish man do and what exactly happened after and what did the intellectual people you met yeah, say about basically this? Like, can you walk what, us through what, the piece what about? everyone knows he flew yeah. to uh, to uh, to Sweden two years ago I think. He ripped some pieces of the Quran and he burned uh, the Quran uh, in front of a mosque on Eid al Adha. Um, and he's young. He's in his maybe thirties, early thirties. Yeah, I uh, maybe thirty-seven, but I think uh, younger. Um, yeah, you can. See. Um, yeah, and the, lots of backlash happened after that, um, and the Swedish authorities actually charged him. For creating uh, tensions, I, I don't know what the legal term for the charge was, but the Swedish authorities actually charged them, and it prompted a lot of um, protests uh, in a lot of countries, especially in Iraq, where it mm. took uh, a violent turn. They tried to attack the Swedish uh, embassy. Uh, they burned LGBT uh, flags, and Muqtada Sadr uh, was advocating for that. So this is what happened, uh, and I asked, I wondered what, because I, I can't ask like a Swedish person about what they think, uh, mm. whether they think this is within the frame of uh, freedom of expression or not. I had to ask a Lebanese, uh, some Lebanese intellectuals about it, which is what I did. I asked uh, your uh, former guest, uh, most recent guest, Jad Shahroul, about it. And uh, I asked a sheikh who's a former uh, Dar al-Fatwa mm. uh, member. Yeah. And uh, the head of Adyan, Elias, uh, I forget what his Yes, name. I forgot his last See name too. See how you too. find the middle ground? That's well said. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. And what the Sheikh said wasn't. Uh, yeah, he wasn't, wasn't the most politically correct. Thing. Right. And yeah. I. What did he say? And people questioned whether I should leave it in the article or not, but I insisted uh, so if you could sh- it's, share, it's, that, re- share yeah. that section with us yeah yeah because it's representative of what uh, a lot of people feel at least whether it's true or not uh, the sheikh said that um, when it like he fears that the west discriminates between uh, between uh, issues that have to do with Arabs and Muslims mm-hmm. and issues like LGBT issues or uh, anti-semitism issues he, he claimed that if it was a Jewish issue people have, uh, would have lost their minds around it. Whereas he didn't think that they minded the burning of the Qur'an as much. And whether this is true or not, that's how a lot of people feel. 
to be fair, the Swedish authorities did charge this man. Yeah. Maybe because of the backlash that happened after, but they did charge him. With, with uh, inciting like, hatred towards he, an ethnic group? Or yeah, something, something like that. Yeah. I, I forgot what the legal yeah. term for it. Uh, and I think Muqtada Sadr, uh, he said, you need to bring him back to Iraq so we can take care yeah, of him. Yeah, that's true. They were calling for that. Calling for his return. Yeah. And the man was like, oh, in 10 days, I will do it again in front of the Iraqi embassy. <laughs> yeah. It's a little yeah. too much. <laughs> that, uh, that's true. Yeah. But it is a healthy discussion to have whether this uh, should be uh, something to uh, punish uh, legally or not, or whether it is... Uh, and the framework of uh, uh, the freedom of expression. What did Jihad say? Jihad said that it depends on the culture of the country and the laws of this country. Mm-hmm. And accordingly, uh, like it, it, it would differ from country to country. And I think that's a very reasonable thing. What Elias Ramadian said is, he's against the act, of course. Uh, but he said change doesn't come, like what we were discussing mm-hmm. earlier. Uh, change doesn't come through labeling uh, people as uh, racist or homophobic or anti-this religion or mm. uh, Islamophobic or whatever. Change happens through discussion, healthy discussion, social cohesion. Um, when you have discussions without judgment, um, you get you can reach a level where people accept each other more, uh, rather, and you would reach a stage where you don't uh, experience a burning of the Quran as a result. And I, and I think that's the more healthy way to deal with any uh, quote-unquote hate crime or uh, if someone says something too politically incorrect, it's better to, uh, instead of to censor this, to let it out there and engage in a discussion about uh, whether this is right or not. I think this is the more healthy approach. Mm. Well, I want to ask your opinion. I know you're not interviewing yourself for that article, uh, but when you see that kind of image, yes, it doesn't have to be that specific story. It could be anybody doing something like that. Okay. Forget him in Sweden. Let's say any protest that emerges from a uh, what is the word when you defame a holy text? Sure. What kind of expre- what Where do you stand? Since we're so politically incorrect, I assume you would have a politically incorrect opinion. I think it's useless. It doesn't do any, any good. Like, and it only offends people and uh, makes them angry. So what's, uh, I don't see the upside of, this, uh, of such an act. Hmm. Not the value of the act. Okay, let, let me ask it differently. You're, you're a writer, a reporter, and features writer, and a linguist. Eh, that's a big claim, but sure. I studied linguistics. Uh, he is, in a way, upholding the extreme version of what you do, which is expression. Yes. It's a very extreme, very ugly, almost like a, he's taking it to its limit, which sure. is, here is, here are words a prophet recited. Sure. I'm going to burn it. Yes. I don't know if any of that is illegal. It, if it should be illegal. No, uh, I don't know what the reaction to that... I don't... Hmm, I'll say from my side. Reacting to him, I think, is worse than his uh, protest. 
giving him the unfair, the unnecessary attention is, I think, worse than the act itself. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Yes. I was going to say the same thing. Like, um, opening that magazine and talking about it and condemning it is worse than the vulgarity of that magazine. Yeah, but people react emotionally, so, not strategically, right? You're right. So I think what is the when the fine line? Where's your fine line? freedom of speech, freedom of speech. So yeah, freedom of speech and expression is something uh, I'm very passionate about. Yeah. Uh, some of the politically correct rhetorics really give me allergies. Uh, can, you, can you can you can you describe that? You keep saying it. So what is a politically correct? Uh, I mean, I mean the concept itself. I'm, I'm all for emphasizing, uh, emphasizing with the minorities and refugees, and yeah, you should respect your feelings more. But there shouldn't be. I mean, I don't know if there should, but the line seems to be growing, and people are not comfortable uh, talking about uh, expressing very reasonable opinions of them because they feel. Intimidated, or they sometimes feel they're gonna lose their jobs. No, sometimes if you express something on Twitter mm. nowadays, you lose your job because mm. of this. So yeah. this part I don't like. Mm. I like. I think every person should consider uh, the feelings of the minorities and refugees and uh, mm. all sorts of uh, undermined groups. But uh, so in that case, he's the minority and refugee in Sweden at the same time. Yeah, shouldn't we be so open to his prob- his hatred? Of Islam, mm. I'm trying to think why um, why does this issue cause such a storm? Yes, and really, what you think about it as a journalist, where where your opinion stands. Going back to that discussion, though, whether uh, there should be censorship on speech or not, I haven't really, like yeah, baby. But the line is a very tricky thing to place. Like there, there are times where. When a politician or an influential person says something, it creates violence. And if it's uh, if it's uh, the case, should there be censorship against uh, such an act? Um, probably yes, but placing the line is a very tricky thing to do. It's uh, I don't envy Elon Musk uh, uh, owning Twitter because he has to do it, but uh, he's an advocate of uh, the freedom of expression, whether this is honest or not. But uh, he has a very hard mission to, uh, to make when it comes to that. When it comes to the burning of the Quran, if, if he should be punished legally, I, I answered like he shouldn't be doing such an act. So should we react to it? Should people react to, uh, to him? Uh, I think a lot of right-wing religious groups believe that they should react to them to him because it would intimidate uh, others from doing it mm. ideologically and that's why Salman Rushdie for example yeah um, Nasrallah had the speech uh, years before saying that if people killed Salman Rushdie uh, the Charlie Abdo people or he, maybe not the Charlie Abdo but the Denmark people who also burned the, the Quran yes, wouldn't yeah. have had the courage to do it yeah. Mm-hmm. So they uh, and I think uh, it's an effective tool uh, somehow. I don't think uh, it would stop it com- completely, but I see the logic behind it. So you're able to say that you would not do what he's doing as an act of protest 
I definitely me personally. You have no curiosity there, but you would not necessarily go down the more politically correct road, which is he's violating Muslim rights. Oh, I didn't say that. I don't. Yeah. So I'm trying to get how you where you stand on something like that happening, because in a way it's it's again it's just an extreme version of expression. Yes. So where 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 is your line in that story? I think because his act could create violence, I think that should be mm. the line. That's the line. Okay. But not necessarily. I mean, mm. you, you tell me what you think. Uh, mm. I don't think it's about an individual doing this or a collective act. Mm. I, I also don't think this guy should be uh, killed or anything. Uh, he should be protected. Ce- celebrating him seems off. Mm. Yes. Definitely. He's not a hero. Yes. He's, I think, more attention-seeking than anything. I don't know if it's attention-seeking or he is full of hatred mm. because of mm. the country or the atmosphere he was living in. Sure, full of hatred. I think when you decide to do that in front of a mosque rather than in front of a forest or yes. in your home where you could burn whatever you want, don't burn your home down, he's doing it in front of a religious institution. He's targeting an audience that in itself means he wants a select audience mm. to watch him and he feels like he's protected from the state meaning that audience cannot do anything about it sure. so i'm here mm. f you yes f your text mm. to me that's more like views generating insights uh, almost exposure it's not a healthy debate. It's definitely not a healthy debate. Right. So there's that. But is, is he there's seeking... No debate, but is he, <laughs> there's no debate. Yeah, but, yeah. but I mean... Um, is he purely seeking attention? I mean, there's a, there's a phase called teenage atheism that a lot of teenagers go, go through, and they would blame religion for everything that's wrong in the world, no? A 37-year-old Iraqi refugee... But he only traveled two years ago to uh, Sweden. Sure. So he's living his teenage atheism phase, no? Context, I think. I agree with him. Let's okay. You're, you know what? I'll say it differently. Um, he's not doing it for his own sake. He's doing it so that other people see him do it. And he even said, which you're right, I'll be back in ten days in front of the embassy. Which means he's the man is on a mission. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. not just burning because he hates it. So let's say there's a political story there too. I think he can express whatever the hell he wants, but covering him in a way that seems like there's a war between Islam and Sweden or refugees and locals or mm. secularism and whatever, religiosity. Yes. That, I think, covering it that way makes everything worse. So you're not against covering the incident? You're against how they are covering it? Yes, the narrative surrounding that incident, I think, blows things out of proportion, where it turns one man's struggle into a clash of civilizations. And I don't think that's true. Sure. I, th- I, think, I think they can't escape covering the incident. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I agree with you. They should put it in perspective. Yeah, this is where corre- politically correct and incorrect, that's where it lives, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Which sure. is, are you trying to push an, ideolo- an ideology on this story? Or are you really just observing it for what it is? For sure. Yeah. Uh, my modest opinion, I'm not the journalist here, but I think... Journalism is about how you convey the message. Right. Yeah, the news 
انيون هلا فيني انا اجي خبرك نفس الشيء اللي كل العالم عم تخبرك اياه yeah. it's how I tell the news it's putting it in perspective yeah it's figuring out what the right news is like what's facts mm-hmm. and putting them in perspective for mm-hmm. sure. yeah have you ever been motivated to write about a story that would get you more exposure only for that reason mm. personally speaking yeah not really that's why i like him i know so he's not he doesn't like twitter I mean, instagram and facebook sure. more accurate reporting and better quality writing it has a selfish part actually i cover the stories that i'm interested in mm. <laughs> so mm. i wouldn't uh, force myself to write a story because it would uh, give me more uh, clickbait mm, mm, mm. uh, more readers are gonna see it so i think less people are doing this nowadays I completely agree. But that is really why I kept pushing you at the beginning to figure out why you're doing this. Mm. Yeah. But that's not necessarily a good thing, no? Because you have to market yourself. Like, if I'm writing an article and I don't have much followers on Twitter or Instagram, mm. few people are going to read them, as opposed to if I'm working on my exposure so that when I write an article, a lot of people are going to see them, no? So it's not necessarily the right choice. to make I'll end it with my thoughts and maybe Amira I'll let you have the final say at the end you can say whatever you'd like I'll just share my last thoughts I think that is the right decision mm. and the reason I say that is I get this feedback all the time make mm. your episodes shorter do them in more targeted ways be more confrontational why don't you sound more like that yes. why don't you talk more like that Even when there's a hysteria happening, let's say a story comes out of nowhere and there's a convenient target, go after that target, your clicks will go up. Yes. What drives me insane, followers, uh, views, Elon Musk, your friend, made it now accessible. <laughs> you see how many people viewed your yes. tweet, yes. not engaged it. Uh, this is just a numbers thing. Well, the reason I fully agree with you is because none of this matters. What matters is that you're reaching the audience you want to reach. Mm. And if that's 10% of the person next door who's sharing garbage, then you've already found that the 10% you're reaching mm. are the ones you always intended to reach. Mm. The 90% have nothing to do with you. They have no interest in what you're writing, and they're not meant to. But Sonia, you risk to be in an echo chamber. Uh, I, I, don't, I think Instagram and I don't know TikTok I'm not on it but that is where the echo chamber thrives it's sure. you're doing it just to build an angrier audience and a bigger base of muscle that gets you nowhere mm. and people post accordingly mm. oh, okay. but there's also the financial aspect no? Mm. if you're only yeah. resonating with 1% yeah mm. you're not gonna be uh, an Like the newspapers are not going to want to employ you because you don't have much uh, exposure. I beg to differ. I think a decent newspaper, a credible newspaper, would hire you over somebody just posting trash for clips. Quality, not quantity. I believe that. I actually firmly believe that, which puts me back to something I said earlier. Um, You're not just a journalist. You're not in this just for the sake of it. And if you are an activist too, you're doing it the right way. Mm. You're pointing everything in the right direction slowly and 
you're getting to exactly where you need to where you need to be. I'm glad that you're now writing essays, features pieces. I remember when you wanted to do that, and now you're doing it regularly. So you're already moving in the right direction. And if you lose followers on the way, it's the followers you're meant to lose. I'll take the compliment. It's a, yeah, I believe this. I mean, that's the final. It's all yours. Anything you want to say, it's your, it's your grand finale. Uh, I bet how we found intersections, big tier topics. It was interesting. Yeah, there should have been more debate and like beating each other up, right? It's more... <laughs> <laughs> no, it's hard, to, it's hard to debate with somebody you really respect. I information Oh, sure, yeah. Go ahead. social media, that's a very good thing. I I. بينزل stories وبينزل posts وما حتى بيعرف مين عمل like ما حتى بيقرا الكومنتس ما حتى يعني بيرد مرة بالسنة على الكومنتس. That's a very healthy thing. إلا إذا في عالم لح يقبروا بعضون. So حتى DMs مش دائما بيرد WhatsApp أو أت ما بيرد. Yeah, I think of WhatsApp as social media. إيه بس إنه. You really want to reach me, Colin? True. إيه. True. True. That's how I catch him actually. Yeah. I called you today. Yeah. I would never cool. waste your time with an Instagram DM. Or uh, uh, I would not chat. Yo, Wainik. Mm. No, but let's say WhatsApp is also because there's no phone service. <laughs> <laughs> we call each other to on WhatsApp. No, I, I think that's the recipe. Mm. You, you, you're there to... You're there because you believe what you're writing exactly. and what you're sharing is... Believing is, in what yeah, you do. Not in and numbers. Eh, I can't. Oh, uh, no passion, I think. Yeah. Yeah. What drives? I agree. But thank you for letting me push you on your personal story. With you're kind to let me ask you, not just your personal routine or why you got into this profession. Uh, You're generous to let me be the first podcast you've been on. You're also generous with your time. Post-editing, no one will tell how long this took. This took a lot of time. You're also gracious to let a new co-host uh, present herself. No, I've much been preferred. honored. She was great. Yeah. So with all those reasons and more, keep writing the way you do. And wherever this journey takes you, I think you're doing it the right way. Thank you for having me. It's nice to get to know you better. It, uh, it is, and I've been honored to be the guest of Roni and Thank Amira. you for coming. Thanks, Wade. Appreciate Thank you so it. Much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Amira. us engage this youtube channel so like comment and subscribe and click on the links in the description to contribute to this podcast